Time stream feed has been acquired. RPG X-ray modulation inserted. Adjudicating temporal anomalies in 3, 2, 1. Welcome to RPG X-ray, the podcast that looks inside what makes RPGs tick. If you're a role-playing gamer that wants to think about the hidden systems inside the games we love to play, join us for a regular discussion of the theory and practice of tabletop role-playing. This episode's topic is systems. Unlike video games, role-playing games separate the game engine, game concept, and game level into distinct pieces. We dig into the various ways that RPGs split authority for the design of each piece between designers, game masters, and players. What effect do these choices have on the experience of the game, and how can you use them to foster great play at your table? Joining the X-Ray team today are Jason Beaumont. Hey, Jason. Hello. Ethan Schoonover. Greetings, humans. And myself, Eric Saltwell. As always, before jumping into the main course, though, we like to start things off with an amuse-bouche we call Appendix X. So in Appendix X, we do a little summary of all the media that we're consuming currently with a particular eye toward how it could be applied to gaming. Uh, Eric, do you want to start us off? Yeah, so I have been walking through play guides, like Prima guides, for the game Hitman World of Assassins. And the reason for that is... uh, The video game. Yeah, exactly, the video game. Just making sure there wasn't an unknown RPG system based on the Hitman (laughs) universe that I was unaware of. I mean, like, maybe there... I would not be surprised if there was, but I don't know of one. So I was playing Hitman, and... They do this really interesting mechanic, which they call opportunities, which is that as you're going through a mission and Hitman is a game about um, taking assassinating people and you often have to infiltrate in. And as you're coming into a place and infiltrating, they will drop clues that are intended to give you an opportunity to have an easier or more fulfilling kill. And And I was thinking about this in the context of improv heist scenarios like you might see in Blades in the Dark and how one of the things that I always have problems with with those types of improv heist scenarios is they can feel very generic and they can feel very samey. And I was thinking that this concept of even having a table or some way for the game master to think about opportunities and how do I drop them even like in blades there's an information gathering phase and using and collecting opportunities in order to enrich that experience so I've been walking through every mission in world of assassins and looking through their opportunities to maybe pull it out and make it more generic Wait, can you give me an example of a specific opportunity? Yeah, sure. So you might walk by and you'll hear somebody talk about, oh, the person that you're putting a hit on is having a meeting in the back garden with so-and-so, and you might be able to take that person out and then impersonate them. Or you might find find out that somebody is going to a location where it's going to be easier for you to snipe them. Or, um, you know, you might... Uh, see somebody walking along who is uh, got, has a uniform where they're supposed to be at that location with an eye towards, then you can take that, you know, knock them out, take it, and then now all of a sudden you have an entry in. So those would be, I think, example opportunities. One thing that's kind of interesting with that uh, in um, tabletop RPGs versus video games is in video games you have like that kind of full sensory experience. You're 
present inside of the world. You're exploring it. You're hearing sounds that are both important and kind of unimportant. You're seeing visuals that are maybe key to the adventure and not. Whereas at the table, the DM is conveying all that stuff to you. And I think players tend to assume anything the DM conveys is probably something like a tool they should be using to like solve kind of the part of the puzzle. And so that must be a tricky kind of thing to think about with Hitman because you're kind of picking that up more ambiently and some things are important, some things aren't. Whereas at the table, I feel like if you mentioned an overheard conversation, the players are just going to just fixate on it. Yeah. I was just thinking the same thing, Jason. Like exactly. That was what was going through my mind is like the first thing that you present as an opportunity to the players becomes the fait accompli. Right. So what's interesting, I think, in Hitman is they they're pretty on the nose about what is an opportunity or not. Like, I feel I feel like you can go into a like an escape menu screen and they list the opportunities and it's pretty in your face on the nose. Um, And I thought actually I thought for sure that I was going to hate that. But without it, a lot of Hitman missions actually just they feel very samey. Either you're going in guns blazing and killing a ton of people or you're playing a stealth mission where you're sneaking in. And right. so I just, but I agree with you guys. There is that definitely that risk that you, you can't have more than one opportunity because if you do, um, people will just take the first one. It's yeah. interesting though. I mean, what if you presented some sort of UI to the players? Like, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, like playing cards, right? Like, let's say that, Let's say the players always know that there's going to be more than one playing card that shows up or yeah. like two or three playing cards and they represent discrete choices or opportunities that could be made in a given scenario. Yep, right. no, so I like that idea. Then they're actually waiting for the other shoe or the other card literally to drop, right? So, or something. I, I don't know. That was Will workshop that one. Yeah, no, I, I think there's an opportunity there to build tension where if if there's some kind of a doom clock ticking, you're you're making that play between do I want to go get more opportunities and put more cards on the table? Oh, interesting. Right? Versus, but, oh, if I keep doing this, then my doom clock is getting closer and closer. Yeah, you're, you're uh, maybe like you're risking exposure or like, you know, it's almost like a stealth mechanic, right? Yep. Like the more you kind of are opening yourself up to get some of these things, right. then you're risking a chance of being spotted or being conspicuous in some way. So, huh. yeah, you yeah. know, I wonder if you could almost tie it back to like, yeah, like you're, it's a limited, you're, you're spending some limited resource to explore more opportunities in, yep. the, in the world. So like, I wonder if, you know, like I'm using cards as an example, if it was like a finite pool yep. of cards and they can be spent on what on various things they can either be spent on exploring opportunities or, or just oh. waiting, waiting for the opportunities to show up. You know what I mean? But yeah. if you wait for three cards to lay out in front of you, that that's it. Those, those cards are gone from the pool. You, so you have spent that pool resource to, um, to give yourself choice. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. You know? I, I really like that concept of the laying the cards out and people, realizing that oh if i put a card out there's probably another card coming and uh, that's really nice jason should we go on to you what's your what's your appendix x this week yeah sure i'm playing through control again video game don't tell me that you're gonna make me feel guilty (laughs) for not finishing it because i love it well do you want to summarize what control is and it's and it's rich and storied history geez uh no (laughs) (laughs) 
Can I just mention, can I just mention Please the, do. so Please there's, do. yeah. okay, this goes back to, I want to say it goes back to a genre of media and like TV and probably fiction, weird fiction. I always think of it going back to a mini series called The Room. Okay. So you're way past me at this point now. So go on. Oh, okay. I, I'm, I'm super curious to hear about this. I, yeah. I think, I think it was called The Room. No, sorry. The Lost Room, I think is what it was called. And The the Lost Room was a mini series, which is near and dear to my heart. And it stars the guy who played the mechanic in The Usual Suspect. Uh, who I forget his the actor's name, or he's in there. Anyhow, the the core concept is, and the guy from Six Feet Under. The core concept is that there is a this mystical hotel room, okay? yeah. and uh, it sort of exists in no space or time. It is trapped in both time and space, and there is a key that opens it up. And you basically, the owner of this key, whoever it is at any given time, can insert it into any lock in the world, and it will open up the hotel room. And oh, so they, interesting. Yeah, so they can walk into this liminal space. And it turns out that the other objects in the hotel room also, they were given some sort of like some power or some ability was uh, sort of instantiated into them. And so like the pen, if you click the pen that was in the hotel room, something happens, you know, maybe if you use the comb, something happens. Um, there's like a bus ticket, I think, where if you tap it on somebody, they're like, um, they're spirited away to like this random location in Pennsylvania or something. Uh-huh. So it's that all that stuff that was a mini series. It's I recommend it actually as part of Appendix X, I guess um, I want to go back and rewatch it, but there's this whole wiki that was sort of developed in sort of the same vibe called SCP. And I forget what that stands for. I should remember as a true fan, but uh, um, some of them are really well written. Some of them are not. It's a wiki and you know, you get what you pay for, but they're basically like if all those items from the lost room were itemized by a government agency, that's what the wiki was. And control comes, I think, directly from the fans of that wiki who then like turned it into basically this game. Right. And I think yeah. it's ex- kind of explicitly based on SCP, if I remember correctly. This is fascinating to me. Like, I, I'm, I'm learning a lot. listening, oh, yeah, because because there is the SCP foundation in the game. Right? That's right. Yeah, I think it is explicitly connected somehow. I mean, I don't know like what the what the ip relationship is uh, i don't know even know what the license terms of the wiki are it's maybe creative commons so maybe it's like sure you want to make a cool video game that we all love now uh based on this stuff go for it super cool yeah, yeah so that's the deep lore and i i've never finished the game and i feel bad because i feel like it's a pretty well done you know experience yeah i i wanted to play it this month to prepare for um alan wake 2 which comes out at the end of the month um and um so i was excited about that game and they tie in together and so i wanted to do that and and to me i think this idea of like a corrupted reality and like subjective reality that is something that i think would make interesting tabletop play and and i think it'll tie into the, the subject we're talking about today which is where does the player have the authority of the subjective reality and where does the table and where does the game master and where does the system, right? So I think that that is an um, interesting concept worth exploring. So- Boy, Jason, I have been thinking so much about that because, you know, we, we have played a Yellow King role-playing game together, right? That's right. I game mastered that. And uh, Eric and Jason were both in this game with me along with other folks. And I... I still feel like I have not cracked the nut of what reality horror means. Right. Right. 
and, and I would, so I would love to think some more about that because that vibe that you get from like SCP, the lost room, uh, control. Yeah. That idea of like corrupted reality, but it's, it, it's, there's a fine, there's a vibe to it that I, I didn't quite crack with yellow King. I feel like. I, 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 well, I, I thought you did a great job on that. Uh, Thank you. Uh, but I was but me I, fishing. I, I would, I'm gonna, I'm gonna reel back in now. <laughs> no, but, but I'll, I'll say the same thing, which is I have never figured out how you do a subjective reality, you know, kind of experience in, in a tabletop setting. So, yeah, uh, yeah, cool. And wait, Eric, we haven't, wait. Ethan, I think, I think I haven't done you, myself. You yeah. 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 Just, yeah. just trying, I was trying to like sneak past. Stealth roll failed. Uh, okay, so I've been reading books primarily. I've been doing a lot of technical work this past week on uh, ham radio, which is like one of my other hobbies, and reading just tons of that. So it sort of monopolized my time, but not sure how, if there's any way that that uh, ties back into role-playing games other than the fact that I did make a role-playing game analogy convincing somebody to learn ham radio where I said that the rule set is very simple. There are no variations. It's just physics. So, <laughs> However, I've been reading Umberto Eco, who I'm a big fan of. Hopefully everybody has seen things like Name of the Rose and um, maybe people have read Foucault's Pendulum, but uh, I'm reading love, his... I love yeah, Foucault's Pendulum. Yeah. So good. Uh, so I'm reading uh, On Beauty, which is a nonfiction work, sort of a survey of beauty through the ages by him. And uh, he's just a beautiful writer and, uh, you know, a deep thinker. So, And the way that that ties back into RPGs for me is just, you know, I, I really love reading historical sources um, when presenting scenarios historical scenarios i like reading you know what's going on in the times how did people live um sometimes maybe even going too deep into that stuff but it's one of the things that really bothers me is when i when i personally present a historical source or sometimes when i see it presented and people are very much uh 20 late 20th century characters or 21st century characters that are they just happen to be you know they're played these historical characters are played as if they're just modern characters and yeah. you know it's a game they're historical games yes to an extent we're always going to bring our modern sensibilities to our historical characters and there's a lot of the historical world that we want to leave out like all the bad things sometimes Is it? <laughs> racism and sexism we sort of it's very nice to kind of be able to paper over that and have some diversity in our characters historically but there are other things where i'm like yeah how do we present what it was like for people like what did they find beautiful what did they find horrific what did they find ugly and to think about those things. So this is this is great to look at it through the ages and, and see how it's changed. You know, I, I don't know if you remember my campaign document for Masks of Nile or Throtep that I sent out to the group before we started playing, like before our session zero even. But right. yeah, it 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 basically was like, you know, what is the fantasy version of the nineteen twenties we're gonna play in? Is it one that contains, you know, some of the awful parts of our history back then around, you know, or, or currently till to this day, still around race and gender, like where do we put the needle as a table on how much that wants to be part of our play versus something we ignore, et cetera. And I, I think the same thing is true around things that you find, you know, just and beautiful uh, or not. So um, yeah, I can see how that's very applicable to table play. All right. Well, that feels like a pretty good Appendix X. And uh, I think that that should take us on to our main topic. 
So today's topic is systems and the relationship between systems and games. And in order to understand this, I want to give an analogy. And my analogy will be to the video game Assassin's Creed, the very first one. So uh, the contention here is that there are three pieces to a game. There is the rules system or the game engine in a video game place. And in Assassin's Creed, this includes mechanics like Eagle Vision and Leap of Faith and doing parkour and stealth and alarm levels. Then there's kind of a core game concept or conceit, or sometimes it's just setting. In Assassin's Creed, this is you are a religious assassin in the Middle East during the Crusades era. And then there's the actual level or level design or adventure design. And in Assassin's Creed, this would be a very specific mission, right? So like, um, oh, here's this one mayor who you need to go assassinate. And these three things in a video game are all specified by the game designer. But in a role-playing game, it's actually much different. I think this is something that is unique amongst role-playing games, or maybe close to unique, where uh, you might buy a, a product that is just a system, right? Like, I think Rifts is really just a bunch of rules without any concept of a game conceit or a setting or a specific adventure. You might buy a game that is like... Uh, that is, say, a homebrew campaign of 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons where you get a core conceit. It's a fantasy role-playing game where you're, you know, adventuring heroes and it's got a full rule system with advantage and disadvantage. But you're, But it's the GM who is actually doing the level or adventure design. And then sometimes... You might have, well, I'm running a published adventure, like I'm running Masks of Nyarlathotep, and there uh, it is the game designer who specifies the system, the core concept, and the level or adventure design. And actually, what's great about role-playing games is that for each of those three levels, sometimes the game designer specifies it, sometimes the game master specifies it, and in some cases, for improv play, it can be even the the players who who do this. And so the question that I wanted to get at today and talk about is what effect does making these choices have on your experience of play? How do you use it? What types of say rule systems lend themselves to people homebrewing settings and adventures and, and how do we use this and interact with it? So um, yeah. Uh, thoughts. Yeah, I I mean, I have one thought, which is just uh, we should probably do away with the canard that system doesn't matter. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, you hear that a lot, and I think you hear that a lot from people who only know how to play D&D and who have only played D&D, and that's, by the way, I'm not dissing that. You know, I think any entrance, any doorway into the hobby is a good doorway. That was my doorway. You know, D&D reminds me of those recipes that you see on the back of, like, Oreos boxes. Uh -huh. It's like, look at all these cool desserts you can make with Oreos. And it's like this pre, you know, it's like a pre-processed food that you're using as an ingredient because they want to sell more Oreos. And I'm not saying that TSR does that or TSR wizards does that. <laughs> maybe TSF, maybe it all goes back to TSR. <laughs> uh, but but I, I think that 
the idea of using like D&D is a weird example because we should talk about because it is a system that is so tightly bound up and hard to extricate from everything. It's scenario and setting and this is it. Yep. So um, but it ends up it's sort of like that kind of self-contained hermetically sealed processed food that ends up getting chopped up and then reused as sort of a quote unquote system in other types of gameplay and other scenarios. In many cases, you shouldn't do that, I think, because um, don't use Oreos, use actual natural ingredients is what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, it, yeah, I think w- what I love about that there is that, of course, there are people who make very fun at the table experiences out of doing that. Right. Like, of, you know, people are have a great time playing role playing games. And if you want to take your 5e game and move it into the modern era or you want to make a horror game out of it or an investigative game. I'm sure you can do that and have a fun time, but it is, I think I I totally agree with you, Ethan, that you are, you know, you're definitely using those Oreos for the thing that the Oreo wasn't designed for. And you're trying to make a salad out of Oreos. That's right. And that, (laughs) that wait a second. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Right. That has consequences. Yep. Totally agree. Totally agree. You, You know, I was thinking about this episode this week and in my mind, I kept coming back to the differences in, uh, I, 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 I thought about three different sets of rules that are all about playing Star Trek-like games. Lasers and Feelings, Ash and Stars, and the actual Star Trek role-playing game, right? That the system in all of those actually leads you down very different paths of experiencing a genre that I think if you if you played it, you'd be like, oh yeah, this is like Star Trek, right? So... I think, you know, lasers and feelings, there's very little implied setting in that. It's a single page PDF that's about kind of quickly rolling uh, a character and a ship. And I think at the table, you're really inventing the setting together because it's a low to no prep system, right? Yep. Ashen Stars, on the other hand, you know, its heritage is in uh, Trail of Cthulhu and the um, uh, investigative um, procedural based uh, role playing games uh, of that line. And I think in that setting, and, you know, it does have a setting, not super detailed in the book, but there's a bunch of corrupt material there that you can work with. But in that one, the, it's really about, regardless of the details of the setting, the play at the table is going to be a procedural investigative type uh, game. And I think that with the Star Trek one, you're really playing the lore. You're really kind of like the setting and the the setting is really forward. The mechanics are there to enhance your experience of living the setting a bit. And so I thought those three rule set examples mm-hmm. kind of fit into, you know, I wanted to kind of almost tee them up for you, Eric, to tease apart a bit in some <laughs> of the, you know, cosmology you've created here between the, the different interplay between settings and rules, et cetera. I think what's interesting there is that like talking about Star Trek and genre and existing licensed IPs, that those are games where so much of the investment is in the concept and the setting, right? And system and even level and adventure, those are things that I think really are subsumed by wanting to have an experience of playing in that concept and setting. And the system is supposed to create that experience and the adventures are supposed to remind you of experiences of that, um, which is 
interesting, but I think is dangerous. I actually, I mean, I, we recently played both Star Trek and Dune and Blade Runner, and I was surprised at how much I enjoyed that, and I've been loving it, because I feel like the more you invest, especially in licensed IPs, that you feel like you are playing in another player's concept or setting, right? So, like, if you're playing Dune and you're not Moadib, then, you know, is this just performative busy work, right? So. Right. Um, and I mean, like, I know I've played games of Lord of the Rings where I definitely felt like that. Right. I felt like there's somebody else's story going on and I'm just kind of dicking around in that world a little bit. <laughs> right. You're, you're the you're the hobbits that are just kind of having a side adventure while literally the entire world is at war. Right. <laughs> you're yep. just like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is sort of a. Uh, t- not a tangent, I don't think, but I, I don't want to go too far down this path. But I wonder if that's why D and D was so successful because it was just a blatant ripoff mashup of known IP, but it was off brand enough yep. that players didn't feel bound by the IP. I, I think that that's probably pretty right. Now let's contrast that with. I know we were all having a discussion on Discord the other day about. Um, systems that don't have any implied concept or setting and therefore don't have any implied adventure or level. And these are systems like Rifts, which were designed to be kind of GURPS universal role-playing systems. And I think one of us, I think it was you, Ethan, was talking a little bit about how those were kind of the current zeitgeist is that those are not successful. And I was wondering, and we were comparing that with maybe Forged in the Dark games and Gumshoe. Right. Oh, yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah. a specific difference between those, the the like Gumshoe and Forged in the Dark and then the other uh, setting agnostic. Because the Gumshoe and Forged in the Dark as systems have kind of an implied setting to an extent or, or a very specific intent, right? Like Gumshoe is solve mysteries. Right. Not right. A, it's actually not a setting. It's a mode. It's, a, it's like a concept, right? It's a, yeah, it's a mode for the game. Right? It's yeah. a mode yeah, yeah. of play, right? Yeah, yeah. Whereas I think GURPS is like, you can do anything. Yeah. Right, right. And, and do you think that that has to do with the fact that systems like Gumshoe, I don't know about Gumshoe, but definitely Forged in the Dark or the Powered by the Apocalypse games, these are systems that were invented in the course of making an actual game that has a, a mode and a conceit, even if it doesn't have a setting or maybe it does. And do you think that that's part of what's played into making them successful? Why, yes, Eric. I feel like you teed that right up for me. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, for sure. I think that's exactly it. I think that you have to have a strong uh, authorial um, intent behind it. Right. Authorial, sorry, intent. I'm wondering, though, maybe, Jason, you can comment on this just out of curiosity, like the big game engines, were they all developed on the back of like an initial big game? Wasn't Halo was was Halo? Oh, Halo was that Unreal? No, what was Unreal? No, unreal they, was Unreal. They, unreal yeah, was yeah, the yeah. Un, yeah, Unreal. They, they, yeah, Halo invented their own engine. But like yeah, uh, in video games, there definitely was a shift. Where in the nineties you would see people, you know, early, early to mid nineties, they'd create their own engines for their own games. 
then you started to see the rise of some more universal engines that people use to make their own world within that engine of the game. And now I think I would say it's it's very commonplace to use another engine. It's just not when you have another company that's spending hundreds and hundreds of people working on an engine, you, it's not really cost effective for you to do a kind of a mirror version of that on your own. Whereas I would say for role-playing games, it, I think this kind of gets back to Eric's point, because the engine is so deeply intertwined with what the experience of the play is going to be, that the generic engine, like I, I wonder if a GURPS spy game, how much it feels like a GURPS romantic chivalry King Arthur game, how similar those feel in tone and in play, because the mechanics are the same versus if you were playing Pendragon, where you know the rules very much hone in on a style of play at the table that supports the setting versus I don't have a good spy engine game top secret <laughs> from the 80s or something so sure. yeah yeah and, and just to present one other this isn't an answer to your question Eric but uh-huh. I feel like it's an important data point that we should kind of tease apart too um, it, it's again you know gumshoe is an example of a mode based system solve mysteries that gets applied to many different settings so you have like oh oh you want to do cthulhu well you can do the gumshoe mode of that which is just mystery forward yep yep uh also too i feel like uh maybe you get a little bit of that with powered by apocalypse for kind of survival games right because it was originally i mean apocalypse is in the name or the trophy line of games where you have trophy loom and trophy dark and these are all about kind of missions where you go out into the wild and and have a kind of horrific experience and come back with stuff um that's interesting uh blades like you know forge in the dark would be more like heist crew forward i i would i was about ready to say the same thing is is that in like even the band of blades that eric will someday finally get a chance to bring to our table (laughs) it's gonna happen yeah, that he's, feels he's like he's 3D printing right now. He's 3D yeah, printing right now. Yeah, even though that's a military, like a dark military campaign type setting, my understanding is that you definitely feel like you're part of a crew, like a bonded crew, and and I think that's what the Forge of the Dark series does such a great job of. Is you know I'm going to use the term gang loosely, but it's about kind of simulating, you know, what it's like to be part of a gang or a crew that kind of bonds and works together to experience, you know, something. And then there's the kind of that meta layer of the, the gang itself advancing almost as a character in addition to your individuals. And that I think too, in, in blades, it's, um, I totally agree with you that it optimizes for gang style play. It also, I think optimizes for mission play where it's really in, in kind of the same way that used to have monster of the week games. As a, um, Blades is built around uh, a concept of like, hey, you have a position in the world and that position changes because you go and do a mission and then the mission ends and then the position changes. But what you play next week is really a totally different mission and compare that to kind of traditional long form campaign play like you find in Dungeons and Dragons where it's almost one story that that takes, you know, right. Right. And also where it's an important aspect of the traversal between missions is like a part of the play. Right. 
Yeah. And, and, and I think it's lazy dungeon master who has the strong start kind of idea of, uh, like, you know, he, and sorry to expand upon that. What he recommends is as soon as the players sit down at the table, everyone's got their drink dice at hand. You want almost like an in media res, like a moment where you're like bang right off the bat, you're in the action. And I think things like band of blades and blades of the dark really, really support that kind of, uh, a beginning, I sometimes struggled with it with D&D because you're like, oh, at the last mission, we started walking through the woods and I guess my strong start is goblins show up. And I've I, I've, I've had a harder time incorporating that advice into campaign play, but I think the mission style play lends itself really well to it. Are you focused in that statement on the in media res? Yeah, a little bit. I'll go back to the Master of Narothotep campaign, for example. A lot of the material in the campaign book is there to support almost simulation style play of you investigating this global conspiracy for the end of the world. It's like, here are the hotels in London you can go to, and here's how much they all relatively cost. Here's the transportation networks that, you know, they the characters can make use of. And I would read those and I would think, man, if I am going to spend my time at the table having my players do that, it doesn't feel super fun. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and yet I feel like there's like this like vein this through line in rpg play that's like well if you didn't do that how did your players show up in that moment of action whereas i think band of blades would be like you know you're behind a barricade and they're coming right at you and this the method the system isn't about well wait, hold on how did we get here i wanted to polish my armor and talk to surf jimmy about you know <laughs> like new stirrups for my horse right that's just not the the, the method and I, and I find as I get older and our playtime gets limited, I'm leaning much more towards the kind of episodic, get right at it kind of style of play than it's, you know, when I was younger and it's like, well, we're going to spend all day Saturday on it. And so we're all going to draw floor plans for our keep and we're going to detail like the furniture we're going to buy in the center of town for it. Yeah, that that bookkeeping aspect of play is definitely falling away. I mean, it's, yeah. you know, I, we're, I, I agree it's because we're older, we're time poor now. And we're no longer time rich like we were when we were kids. There's a cultural expectation that that boring bookkeeping gets automated now, right? Yeah, that's right. You use QuickBooks. You use whatever to automate that stuff out of the the play. And somehow we managed to make it part of the play for so long. Like, this is the fun part. No, no, we're going to do this. We're going to sit down and do some double entry bookkeeping together. And it's going to be awesome. Yeah, I feel like we should do an episode at some point about planning and bookkeeping and the role it plays in, in games. So I feel like we've talked a little bit about system-heavy games like GURPS, right, where where really the designer only is specifying the system. We've talked about concept-first games where it's like Star Trek and Dune. And I think there are two, just like you guys said, is Band of Blades is in there, Gumshoe's in there. Now, what do we feel about level and adventure-centric? And I will give an example here that I think about all the time. So you have GURPS on one end and what's on the other end, right? And I think you find a lot of modern indie RPGs on the other end. And I'm thinking of Bluebeard's Bride. I'm thinking of Kagamatsu. I'm thinking a little bit of Troll Babe. These are where really all three of these systems, concept, and adventure are bundled together. And you can't really tease apart the system 
from the actual level that you're playing itself, right? Like the whole mm. game is designed as you're in Bluebeard's bride case. You're the bride of Bluebeard and he just went away and he said, don't look in any of my rooms. And, and then, you know, horror ensues. Uh-huh. But that is like a whole system and concept and adventure that is really about telling that one story. Same thing with Kagamatsu, right? You're in a Japanese village and winter's coming and all the men are gone because of a war that happened. And now you're kind of SOL and what are you going to do? Right. And a, and a guy walks into town and he's your chance of savior. And it's a game about playing with gender issues. But this is a game where you couldn't go necessarily and invent your own adventure. Yeah. The work that we classically do as GMs in making adventures is something that there isn't space for in those games where the adventure is tied so closely with the system that you can't get outside of it. And I actually, I have a lot of trouble, or um, as an example, Siren would be another example of this, right? This is a game that is about you wake up and realize that you are all amnesiacs and there's somebody chasing you and you're just fleeing. And it's that, if, if you play that game a hundred times, you're kind of playing that game you know, that scenario over and over a hundred times. Personally, I have, I have a hard time gelling with games like that. Maybe because I want to engage on the level of like, no, I want to be the level designer. I don't want you to be. And as a GM, I need that to feel really engaged. What do you guys think? I enjoy the kind of all in one package that you just described for when we're all in the mood of doing like a let's explore a new system what are we going to play tonight we have some people missing so we're going to kind of like you know fit something in yeah none of them feel durable to me right they all feel like you're going to do the one thing and when we play that style of game i am way more excited to learn the mechanics because they feel always so bespoke and interesting and something neat like that they're doing that is really going to be some of the theme of the play tonight like i would say for siren when we played siren i had very little interest as a player in uncovering why the bad guys were chasing us i had a lot of interest in uncovering the mysteries of my character and in this game in siren your characters are amnesiacs and as you kind of push your yourselves you end up learning parts of the mystery of yourself through i think the dm has created all the memories you know for you and and i and i found that a ton of fun but i'm a lot completely aligned with you which is like now that we've played it zero interest in playing it again i actually don't even have any interest in running it for anybody because i feel like i've experienced all it has to offer that makes sense to me I also feel like there's a little bit of if if a game is really that bespoke and they've constrained it that far, I feel like even as a player, I have a hard time getting myself into engaging with the character because I feel like the amount of creative control I have feels even in very improv games like uh, when we play inspectors, right? Which again, that's one game over and over again, right? You get right. hired in order to come in and be Ghostbusters, right? Right. Um, and there it's very improv. The players are the ones who end up making the adventure, right? They define what is the scariness going on. But even there, I feel like the scenario has been so constrained that it doesn't, I don't know, maybe I should say it doesn't pique my curiosity enough. Well, it's like when you go to a museum and you walk down a short hall with beautiful small paintings. Uh-huh. You know, like you can you can walk down that hall and you can 
maybe do it twice and you'll see like 90% of the paintings and you're, you're probably not super compelled to go back and see it again. But then there are museum exhibits and I can imagine an indie RPG that is tight like that where it's more like, okay, you can go and every time that you visit that exhibit, it's the same exhibit, but you'll see slightly new things. It's just that there's such a time commitment. Yeah, I, I mean, sure. I agree with you hundred percent about Siren. Like it was fun and I've walked down that hallway and I've seen all the paintings or most of them. And I don't really feel like I'm going to get a lot out of it yep. in terms of like what it asks of me. So, so here's, here's a question for you all. So we have a, you know, regular Tuesday night game that we all play together. Would you have more fun if every week we did another one of these self-contained games? Or would you have more fun if for a year straight you were in the same campaign and you're exploring the character and the world and the mechanics of that system? Mm. Which is more fun for you all as as DMs, as, as GMs, and which is more fun for you as like as players? I'm, I'm curious about. So for me personally, I think the fun, I think I have a ton of fun trying new systems, but for exactly the reason you said, Jason, it's almost more that I want to harvest rules and mechanics so that I can then use them in the long form, more creative play that I want to do. I see. That's very you. Yeah. 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 I, I feel like the experience of those indie games, like again and again and again, it's like going to Nobu every night. (laughs) <laughs> and having having like this That's crazy a great way meal, to put it yeah you know like it's yeah. like so like perfectly designed <laughs> right. and put together but like after a while i think i would find it exhausting yeah. and for me the experience of like that that year of of exploration and build up it's also about sitting at the table and creating something durable i like that jason i think you did you use the yep, word durable? Jason. yeah yeah yep. I've thought about that word now like 50 times during this episode. That's really what it's about, right? Like that creating something durable as a group with friends, right? Yeah. That social aspect. And not just about the, like the others are really about like, look at this plate in front of you. Look at this amazing thing. Experience this unique indie. But that's, for me, it's a little exhausting if it's repetitive like that every week. So no, I like the durability. I like building the durable thing. Every once in a while you get a Nobu. I think I feel the same way. So hearing you say that, Ethan, makes me think that really these these uh, games where the adventure is baked right into the into the system, these are games where it's an issue of scope of play, right? Like last in the last episode, we talked a little bit about um, the role of experience and progression in being able to create long form play, which is again that's a durability thing, and it seems to me like. Um, these games where you have level and adventure baked in are intended to be that very small scope, right? Play. And, and I totally agree with you about the, um, the feeling of like, ugh, again, I'm going to have to like gear up, learn the game, get into it and then get out. And like over and over again, feels like it can be exhausting. <laughs> Eric, was there something else in this topic that you wanted to explore today that you feel like we haven't hit? So, um, so Jason, I feel like you had a question that we were talking about, which is what can happen inside of a system that enables uh, GMs to be able to better create their own game concepts and their own levels and adventures when they're homebrewing content. Right. And and I'm interested if you have any thoughts on on 
on that. Maybe it's like it's really saying, hey, if you're going to put out something that is system focused or conceit focused, mode focused, what should you be putting in or leaving out to enable people to more easily make high quality adventures? Yeah. And maybe like the way into this topic is exploring a little bit how bare boned lasers and feelings is. And then kind of a little bit more how prescriptive Ashen Stars is and then how extremely prescriptive, you know, Star Trek Adventures is. And like, what is it that makes, you know, one kind of open up kind of, I guess, I guess what you're kind of getting is almost homebrew more than another, right? And I, I think that to me, like, and I'll start kind of on the far end of the spectrum with Star Trek just as a system it's like, why would I ever even choose that system if I was going to do anything other than play kind of canon Star Trek, right? Like, I I think even if I was like someone who's like, I really wish that there was a game about Klingon romance, I don't think that I would choose the Star Trek rule system to go have a experience of where my players are Klingons falling in love, right? Uh-huh. I would I would pick, you know something that was where romance was kind of the mechanic, right? You know, whereas with lasers and feelings, if you were saying like, great, I'm going to go create a homebrew world on it. You would look at that single page PDF and you'd say, well, there's nothing here that helps me create the homebrew world. I'm going to have to just go, I guess, just like write down whatever my imagination says. And this is why I've always enjoyed, although never really been able to play or experience much, things like these extensive kind of hex crawl systems or things that are about, you know, what Ethan likes to call lonely play, where you're sitting down and you're rolling dice and you're just as a DM kind of playing for yourself and building out the world there. And so in that in that example, the rule system you're looking for is something that is generically simulationist enough, but where in my in my world, I would want a supplement that can kind of make use of the rules of the simulation to make it so that like when I roll up kingdom and the monsters that are within it, there's some method to getting to the mechanics of the rule set. And it's not just me writing down whatever fantasy ideas come to my mind. To me, that's where I think there's a lot of really design intent that has to go into something like a D&D where there's an implied setting, there's published settings, but it's also generic enough that people could go create their own homebrew worlds into it. I'm not an RPG designer by any means, but my guess is as an RPG systems author, you have to figure out kind of your approach to homebrew pretty early on in your design process. So so I think there's there's two really interesting concepts in that. One is about I, I think is a generally about a topic of genre, right? And That's it. again here, like this was what I was saying about me feeling like I'm playing in someone else's game and that just constrains the type of stories I tell. Maybe it's also like you were saying, that it's an issue of constraint, right? That there's a level of very high constraint where if you're intent on doing homebrew adventures, you know, it's over constrained for you. But the, and that there's equally a problem of it being under constrained, right? Which is like GURPS, where you can do literally just anything and it just doesn't give you the space to play with the concept or the mode or the conceit that you have. Yeah, I need something to hang off of it yep. mechanically, or I need like some sort of supplement. Like this is where GURPS does shine, which is you can go and buy a supplement for almost anything you can imagine, and yep. it's going to give you enough to create that homebrew world, right? So Ethan, when you were playing Yellow King, like Yellow King, I feel is 
pretty constrained, right? Like it's it's got a pretty strong story that it wants you to tell at the table. Did you feel like that or did you feel like like it gave you room to make your own adventure? And if so, what do you think it did in order to enable that? Yeah, I think it, it does give you I mean, it has it's very opinionated about the settings, but it it's weird because there's four settings, first of all, for Yellow King, explicitly four settings for different yeah, time right, periods. Right. Right. When we've only ever played just part of that, we've played a court of 25% of sort of the, the available settings. And I can imagine other settings as well. I'm going to come back to that for a moment. Uh, I just want to talk about the setting that we did play, which was Paris. I felt absolutely free to create my own, you know, my own world there uh, insofar as it was Paris of the, the late 1800s. It does not explicitly provide you with this is Paris. There is a there is a source book, which I didn't find to be super tractable. I ended up just going to a lot of primary sources. Mm-hmm. I think it's very explicit. Like you know, make use of historical figures, and I'm taking some of that, by the way, from listening to Ken and Robin talk about stuff so heavily, and and knowing that their perspective on gameplay is like, how can I use this historical figure within a gumshoe game? Right. That's, That's it. really that podcast is sort of the um, appendices to the entire gumshoe system. Yeah. And and in the encouragement to homebrew. One thing that has always stymied me about certain systems, and I think gumshoe is probably the most constrained in this regard, is its focus on specific time periods and, and settings. That's it. Like Delta Green or fall of Delta Green, I should say. So like mm-hmm. this is a good example, right? Delta Green is what, 60s and or 70s? 60s yeah 60s right 60s, yeah. yeah sorry delta green is 60s and then fall of delta green is sort of like 70s late 70s yeah i think more like early 70s early because it's vietnam yeah. and then but the the point is that it's very specific time periods That's right. okay maybe i shouldn't use those examples but call of cthulhu versus trail of cthulhu they're also slightly different time periods right isn't i think trail of cthulhu is like more 1930s whereas right call of cthulhu is explicitly 20s and I've always yeah. felt like like why I want to take those and play it in the 50s, huh. right? You know, I want to take the the concept of Call of Cthulhu or Trail of Cthulhu, which are, again, like I look at Gumshoe, it's like it's a mode of play yeah. right, with a thematic IP, like you're you're riffing on Lovecraft yeah. and Trail. So I want to do, you know, I want to do mythos uh, mystery play in any era. Right. Right. I want to do it in medieval England. Yeah. Actually, the, that, we just, I don't know if you've watched A Field in England. I should have mentioned that in Appendix X, but like I just watched the movie A Field in England recently. To me, like that movie is sort of a 1700s mythos play, kind is of it? mystery adventure play. Yeah, how can I create that with, with uh, Trail of Cthulhu or, myth, or Call of Cthulhu rule set? I'm not answering your question. I think I'm just complaining, but it's uh-huh. something I think about a lot, actually, is like how constrained. I want to lay out that we, you know, we, we were talking about setting agnostic systems, generic systems like GURPS. Okay, so there's those. There are game systems that focus on mode of play, like Gumshoe, and there are systems that focus on IP. I've, your examples are perfect, Jason. Mm, thanks. Right? Like Laser's <laughs> yeah. Feelings, Ashen it, Stars, it, and Star It's Trek. a good, it's because they're all trying to do a very similar genre, but in, in different altitudes right yeah 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 Yeah, they're all focused on genre they all have the same ip source but they have different definitely different modes of play one is like recreating the star trek experience 
And what would you say Ashen Stars is then? I, I still think it's trying to do Star Trek. But is it focused on mode? It's not Gumshoe, is it? Or is it Gumshoe? It is a Gumshoe game. It is Gumshoe. So yeah. it's focused on mystery solving. It's, it's yeah, it's very much like that kind of procedural television show moment right. to, to the point where it even talks about A plot versus B plots in TV shows. <laughs> yes, it very okay. much is like you're playing a Star Trek The Next Generation episode in that yeah. game. Yeah. yeah. That is so Robin. Yeah, yeah no, it really very is. Much so, 100%. Very much so, yeah. Right? Yeah. It's focused it, on the drama. Absolutely. And it's and it's actually really to me inspiring to watch how he's been able to make an observation. Oh, you know, the TV shows that we enjoy are all structured in this very similar way. I can then kind of fan that out across a lot of different RPG genres and I can just make some tweaks to setting and system that allow you to enjoy that kind of style of play. Yeah. And and, and I guess to me, and I, maybe this goes to Eric's original question about homebrew settings and things in the system that support the homebrew settings. To me, there was just enough in the Ashen Star rules that I felt like I could go write any part of that universe that I wanted. There was enough of an implied setting that kind of yeah. gave me a foothold that let me not have to write everything from whole scratch. There was enough mechanics in the rules where I kind of knew how to represent different players that you didn't interact or different characters sorry or, or worlds that you didn't interact with i guess that's a great example of one that is able to be i think very homebrewed without going into the full gurps like all i'm giving you is a simulation sandbox kind of uh, mentality yeah. all right so I, I think that about wraps up the topic for us today and as usual uh let's end with talking a little bit about what we're going to take away from this episode uh, and bring to our tables uh, I think for me, really, what I, one of the things I really loved as we were talking about was the sweet spot of modes of play and how systems really can support modes of play and then separating that from what is the actual setting I'm going to use and what is the story I'm trying to tell and looking at finding more systems that are optimized specifically for specific modes of play. I think, I think Gumshoe is a very, very clear one. Um, and maybe you could say that 5e is another one where it's optimized for fantasy combat. Um, but I, I'm not sure that I know a ton of others. Um, yeah. So, uh, Ethan, how about you? Uh, I'm going to try to push myself a little bit to what I'm taking away is, uh, pushing myself to explore some of the other systems that I haven't really dug into too much like blades. And, uh, I just haven't, you know, haven't made that time to really dig into it. And, and I'd love to run a campaign or play in a campaign where I'm exploring, you know, like what would it look like to take the same setting? Could I do a late 1800s Paris blades setting that was like similar in terms of the IP that I'm drawing on or the world that I'm drawing on? or the world that I built and run it as a very different, like what would the experience be of uh, running it as like a heist forward instead of a mystery forward? Yeah, totally. For me, it's um, about communicating some, like a point of view to the players, right? When we sit down to the table to play a new system, this is something that Eric, you do exceptionally well, where you'll say things like, Hey, tonight we're going to play X this game is really all about A, B, and C, so mm -hmm. you should expect like Y and Z, right? And I, I've noticed you do this like exceptionally well. Thank you. And I think that that really sets kind of an idea like, oh, is this game mainly meant for campaign play, but we're just doing a one-shot? Or is this something that's always just kind of about one-shots? Is this about 
Is this something that has like a really expense, extensive world that if we get really excited about it, we can ask Eric to play more in? Or is right. this really kind of like all this thing's about? And it's really just about kind of what we're going to see tonight, right? So I like the fact that what our discussion today helped me better identify that those are some actual, like that's deeply baked into the game that I just, you know, I'm going to sit down and play. And I think just kind of making that player forward at the beginning or player facing rather at the beginning, I think will be uh, something I added to my DMing. I love that, that need for freshman orientation for players and say yeah. like, this is what your stance should be. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. That's yeah. great. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's it for this episode of RPG X-Ray. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform. Your feedback helps us improve the show and reach more listeners who share our passion for role-playing games. As always, we hope this episode has given you some new insights and ideas for your own table. If you have any feedback or suggestions for future episodes, please reach out to us on our website or social media channels available in the show notes and at RPGXray.com.